Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Welcome. Morning, Dr. Rizicki and Dr. Kittredge. Welcome back. Welcome to Grand Rounds, September 6, 2017, our first uh, Grand Rounds series for the academic year. So welcome back to our academic series. Um, and as we reconvene, a few reminders. Uh, the CME credit is still by text to the old phone number. Uh, but in order to verify and print your credit if you need to reach that point or when you need to reach that point, you will be redirected to a new website with a new login. Um, so when you have to do your recertifications and the like, it's not that challenging, but you'll have to log into a new site. You can do that through the, the DH intranet site, but it won't be a single sign-on. You have to remember another, you'll have to remember another um, password. Um, uh, Reminders here, out of respect for our, our speakers, we ask that you keep your cell phones and your pagers on vibrate and uh, leave your computers closed or in your offices for those who really need to multitask. We do stream the Grand Rounds, and you can certainly try to watch and do your other work at the same time in your offices. Um, and uh, tonight we have our semi-annual twice-a-year gathering of the entire Chad community. We will be joined at the beginning by Dr. Joanne Conroy to um, introduce her to uh, our Chad community. So that'll be this evening along with several other upcoming events. I want to look back a little bit. We talk about what we mentioned what uh, being up to some good is sort of the broad category, but at the end of the summer, while we were all still, many of us still vacationing, uh, end of August or middle of August on a Friday afternoon, uh, our PICU received an emergent patient at about 3.45 who needed extensive resuscitation until about 7.30 that evening. And it was an amazing display of collaboration and teamwork and pulling together. In addition to the PICU team, the night staff nurses, Sean DeStefanis, Eliza Taylor, Kristen Fader, Maggie Provost, Katie Kata Lever and Marlene Ciccone, who arrived for their shift and jumped right in. It was a, 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 real, um, a real pulling together, including Katie Tennant. There's a long list because uh, Lisa Mitchell and um, Matt Braga, after the weekend, really identified everyone, everyone who contributed to a a truly life-saving resuscitation in the PICU that afternoon. So Katie Tennant, clinical supervisor, coordinated the nursing response, supported Caitlin Airy and Kylie Lund, who are newer PICU nurses and did a fantastic job. Brianna White, our PD PICU educator, jumped in and supported documentation of interventions and meds. Sherry Schaefer helped support other patients who were certainly needing care while also jumping in and out of the room, with Jen Talbot expertly managing the critical one-to-one -one patient in another room pretty much by herself while everyone else was attending to the critical event. I'll get there, Reto. Um, <laughs> Madonna Gordon, Derek Calloway, and Matt Braga came in from home to help their colleagues, Melissa Fassell and Marcy Singleton. Two adult life safety nurses responded to the call for assistance, uh, along with Julia Barry and Melanie Michelle, house supervisors arranged for adult critical care float nurses to provide additional support for a patient from Two West who needed transfer. Deb Kane from the ICN released Patricia Johnson to come admit the unstable 2S patient to the PICU. The, the respiratory therapy supervisor helped coordinate additional RT staff. Kristen Johnson and Child Life managed uh, to help support the family and answer call lights, while Sarah Chaffee and Lisa Mitchell managed the desk and the phones. Uh, Chloe LaMonica and Louise Pelletier ran from upstairs to downstairs to run for lights and answer call lights, with Maddie Philpot also coming down to provide nursing support. 
in addition to both Dr. Bartshager and Dr. Couturo at the bedside. And Dr. Bartshager also has other kudos, perhaps. I just wanted to give a, um, like, she's going home today, so she's doing well, and I just wanted to update everybody that she's the patient who was uh, there taking, uh, taking all our time is going home today. So. Best news of all. Exactly. Best news of all. So everybody really pulled in and chipped in in, a, in an amazing way. And so thank everyone and all those names. Hopefully you'll see some of them in the room or you'll see some of them around the, the floors today. So um, and thanks for the update, Dr. B. So today, Dr. Gwill is uh, presenting Grand Rounds, and um, we all know Lou Gwill as Dr. Lou Gwill, uh, our own uh, chief of pediatric pulmonology, chief of allergy and immunology, current interim director of the New Hampshire Cystic Fibrosis Center, and um, perhaps our, our, our highest honor, although I didn't find it in her CV um, because it's a long CV, a winner of the Saul Blattman Award here in the Department of Pediatrics uh, within the past three years. Um, but, but Lou had a, a distinguished career before she joined us, a native of Decatur, Georgia. She completed her uh, education and training in Georgia at the Medical College of Georgia, including some internal medicine and pediatrics training with uh, residency in San Francisco at the Kaiser Foundation, as well as fellowship in allergy in San Francisco and allergy immunology back in Augusta at the Medical College of Georgia, where she rose to the rank of Professor of Pediatrics Emeritus and um, Vice Chair of the Department of Pediatrics, holding numerous other leadership positions, including President of the Medical Staff of the, of the Children's Medical Center there, Chair of the Board of Trustees of the Physician's Practice at the Medical College of Georgia, and, and national leadership positions in the Academy and the uh, Board of Pediatrics related to pediatric pulmonology and cystic fibrosis. And um, I only just learned 15 minutes ago that we have, uh, we have Lynn Feynman to thank for bringing this Georgia peach to our midst some six years ago, seven years ago, from their national work together in cystic fibrosis. But no surprise, characteristic of Lou, with all of those roles and titles, always stepping up whenever there is a need. Um, Dr. Gwill stepped up today when there was a transition in our Grand Round speaker at the last minute, not knowing it was the first Grand Rounds of the year. I, I still don't think that would have stopped you from um, stepping up and, and, and giving us an update on a rather impressive Cystic Fibrosis Center um, here in New Hampshire and the work it's done. So, Lou, no stranger, thanks and welcome. Good morning. It is an honor to be the first Grand Round Speaker of the Year and to see the room almost full except for the front row. <laughs> Everybody's excited about being back at uh, school and work and, and all that, and, and I even uh, took off my summer clothes, took off my uh, shorts and uh, sweatpants. I guess get ready for the sweatpants. So um, this was originally titled a 10-year retrospective, and I will say that this, this, uh, this talk was originally done as a 10-year retrospective in Georgia last spring because they had started CF newborn screening in the spring of 2007. Um, and I was invited back to be a Grand Round speaker there, which actually is, in many ways, less intimidating than being a Grand Round speaker for your own <laughs> group. But, um, and then, when I, then I realized that, indeed, for us, it's an 11-year retrospective um, because we started newborn screening um, 11 years ago. Uh, let's see. So I have no, no conflicts to disclose and I will not be discussing any off-label use of anything. Um, what I would like to uh, get across is the impact of newborn screening 
uh, on the diagnosis and the natural history of CF over the last, it's actually been significantly more than 10 years, uh, as, we, as you'll see, and to find this new entity that has come out of our newborn screening. As, as you do, as you get more information, you understand there's more you don't know than more that you, more that you do know. So we've de developed a new entity of CF-SPID uh, or CRMS, both of which are a mouthful. Cystic fibrosis, screen-positive indeterminate diagnosis, or cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator metabolic syndrome, or what those two things stand for. Um, and the third thing is to recognize the role of the primary care physician in the management, because we have developed a new category of CF patients who may be absolutely asymptomatic and who need just the same amount of close monitoring and, and anticipatory guidance as those who were previously diagnosed because they became symptomatic. So I'd first like to start with a story of two girls. And I have permission from these girls and their families. They, they provided me with the pictures, uh, permission to use their pictures and their names. And indeed, they're excited about their stories being told. Um, when I proposed this to them, uh, they had said, absolutely, go to it. These two girls actually know each other. They go to the same school, uh, which is, provides its own set of challenges in terms of infection control and cystic fibrosis. Um, Abby and Hannah met first when playing recreation league basketball that also provided its own set of challenges, but their parents were very open about the, the situation and were creative in scheduling practices. They, played, they went to alternate practices. They played alternate games in order not to come in contact with each other because we don't encourage CF patients to socialize because of concern about spreading organisms between patients. Um, Abby has continued playing basketball, and that is her passion. Hannah, as you can see, has moved on into cheerleading as her passion. So they, they resolved that and, and moved on. <laughs> Abby was born in the fall of 2005, so she is almost 12 now. She had RSV bronchiolitis at five months of age, and then she had persistent wheezing after the bronchiolitis, such that she had an allergy evaluation uh, at two years of age because of this persistent wheezing. She had two more episodes of pneumonia at two and four years of age, and had had a chronic cough for several months before being seen by another of, of our providers, a, a non-CF provider, uh, in Manchester in the spring of 2010. The growth chart here is from our old medical record, um, and I don't know how well this slide projects. So she started, she started pretty well grown. Uh, she was 50th, about 50th percentile at birth, had good weight gain initially, uh, went down significantly, and the point over here, just there, the point over here is the point at which she had was seen at age four years, uh, four and a half years. So she had really lost weight um, as well as as having a chronic cough. On exam in uh, April of 2010, she had digital clubbing that had not been previously picked up, and she had non-reversible obstructional pulmonary function testing. The very vigilant physician who saw her um, got a sweat test, which was positive, and got genetic testing, and she's a compound heterozygote with one copy of the Delta F508 and one copy of another significant CF gene. She was pancreatic insufficient, thus her weight problems. Um, and she was hospitalized at that time and has had three subsequent pulmonary hospitalizations um, here, all of them here, uh, since she was four and a half years old. At the time of diagnosis of CF, she had pseudomonas in her sputum, which is generally felt to be a bad prognostic sign. Um, however, with her initial treatment with IV antibiotics, the pseudomonas was cleared, and she has not been pseudomonas positive since then. She's had MRSA, and she's had Mycobacterium avium, which was treated as a pathogen when it, when it persisted and it was associated with persistent cough. And she currently grows a gram-negative called stenotrophomonas, but she's not had pseudomonas against, since then. I recognize that these other two charts, which come from the CF Foundation Registry, are difficult to see. 
But the top chart is her, her weight. And if you look at the red, the BMI, I, I, does this? Yeah, here we go. If you look at the, the red arrow, the red line, that's her body mass index, which has been all over the place. Here is where she had a G-tube place for poor weight gain, had good weight gain, but it, she has struggled. She didn't like the G-tube, and she ultimately has gotten back up to about the 30th percentile BMI and has had her G-tube removed. She's doing it with, with oral uh, food and nutritional supplements. The bottom graph is her pulmonary function. And again, if you look at the red line, uh, her FEV1 uh, has been all over the place, but this, if this is 100% predicted, she is maintaining good pulmonary function at around 100% predicted on a good day, not without a lot of work, but she is maintaining good pulmonary function. Her chest X-ray at diagnosis was, was uh, pretty grim. I mean, she had pretty chronic changes, which have not been resolved. If you look at the one on the left, uh, she's got a pretty significant right middle lobe um, atelectasis, uh, peribronchial markings, which has never been fully resolved, and she has developed some upper lobe bronchiectasis. Um, but the, you know, her pulmonary function belies the severity of the chronic changes on her chest X-ray. So this is Abby. If we go on to Hannah, Hannah was born in the spring of 2006. As a matter of fact, Hannah was the second patient diagnosed in the state by newborn screening in May of 2006. Uh, her newborn screen was positive with an elevated immunoreactive trypsinogen, and two mutations were identified on the screen. At two weeks of age, she had a sweat chloride. It was significantly elevated, 107 millimoles. Um, she, was, she is also a compound heterozygote, um, and she is also pancreatic insufficient. However, her, her weight gain, she started fairly low here, but over her first four and a half years of age, of, of life, uh, she is up at the 80th percentile, even at four and a half years. Um, so she had very good growth all along. Um, she never cultured Pseudomonas until the spring of 2015, uh, but we were not able to eradicate the Pseudomonas from her, and therefore she has required ongoing chronic uh, anti-Pseudomonal therapy. She's also had MRSA in the past, but it's been eradicated. And she's only had one hospitalization in 2015. If you look at her weight trajectory, her BMI, again, she's maintained, if you, if you pick up with, uh, this is 2012, uh, so there's a, a bit of a gap here, but this is the, the way the CF Foundation Registry uh, records it now. Her BMI is at the 85th, 90th percentile, and she, and she has had maintained good growth throughout. Her lung function has been good. Again, this is a 100th percentile line. This is the hospitalization of the 2015. She rebounded and, again, and maintains lung function that's good, and her chest X-ray is normal. So these are, these are my two patients. Um, two girls, very active, um, in general very well. Both of them have to put a lot of, um, of effort into staying well, but significantly different trajectories. And what's the difference? The difference is obviously newborn screening. Abby was born about six months before we started newborn screening in New Hampshire, and Hannah was born within a month of starting, of starting newborn screening. So Hannah was identified at birth and managed prospectively. Abby was not identified until she was four and a half years of age and was sick at the time of, of, of identification. The whole concept of newborn screening overall is that it's a public health service that applies preventive medicine uh, in defined regions to reduce morbidity and mortality from bio biochemical and genetic disorders. And the concept is pre-symptomatic diagnosis and management um, so that you don't have, you, you don't wait till patients get sick. For some of the things, as you well know, that we screen for on newborn screening, on newborn screening the, the implications are very severe if they're not identified immediately and, and treated immediately. Cystic fibrosis 
is not quite so dire immediately, but the long-term implications are, are significant. Uh, the other part of newborn screening is not only initial diagnosis, but it's also provision of a clinical follow-up program, and that's, and that's very important, and that's been very important with CF. A bit of a, of a, of a step back, we talk about the Guthrie card. The Guthrie card, um, that's the, the, the card where the four little blood spots at the bottom of every newborn that get sent to the, we use, uh, in, in, in New Hampshire, we use the uh, Massachusetts State Lab. Um, Dr. Guthrie was a something of a renaissance man, something of a dreamer. Uh, he was a microbiologist by trade, but he had a number of, of, of talents. Um, and he, as a microbiologist, developed a bacterial assay that could screen for PKU on a dried blood spot. That's the initiation of newborn screening, and that's why we call it the Guthrie card. He pioneered the, the, the collection of blood spots on cards to be used for newborn screening, and he also developed the assay for detection of galactosemia and maple syrup urine disease. So this, is, this all goes back to, and I, I must admit I've forgotten it, exactly when he was doing this, 70s, I think, 1970s. The uh, story of CF newborn screening goes back to around 1979 when immunoreactive trypsinogen could be identified on dried, spots, blood, dried blood spots and, and used. This is an enzyme uh, released by the pancreas, more by diseased pancreas or damaged pancreases than by normal pancreas, but is released from all pancreases transiently in the newborn period. So you can, you can detect some immunoreactive trypsinogen on a dried blood spot from any baby but it's elevated in patients with, with damaged or potentially damaged pancreases. In 1981, this began to be the, the mode of screening for CF in, in New Zealand. In 82, Colorado began a voluntary screening, and interestingly, at the same time, in patients they identified as having CF by, by this elevated uh, immunoreactive trypsinogen and then subsequently <laughs> diagnostic testing, they did bronchoscopies, and a whole other story is identified inflammation in the airway of newborn CF patients even before there's any infection. So then you get to a chicken and egg discussion of what comes first, inflammation or infection. But this was the Colorado story. Wisconsin in 1985 um, developed a research protocol involving both CF centers in Wisconsin. They screened all newborns and uh, for using the immunoreactive trypsinogen. Half of the ones that were identified as being positive were diagnosed and were, went through the diagnosis process and were identified. The other half were not, were, were maintained as a control group, and even if they were known to be positive for CF, were not identified to the families or managed prospectively until either age four or they became symptomatic. How can you do that? How can that be legal? <laughs> Nobody knew at that time that there was a benefit to newborn screening. They had to prove that there was a benefit to newborn screening, and that was the only way they could do it. So, yes, we look back today and say, wow, how unethical. It was not unethical at that time because there were potential risks. The risks were insurance risks, being identified as a CF patient for insurance purposes, psychosocial risks, being, being labeled as CF, when you really didn't know that early intervention was going to make a difference. This was not PKU where you were going to have an immediate CNS uh, problem if you didn't identify and treat these people prospectively. Uh, this was not like many of the other metabolic diseases. This was a, more of an indolent process. Was it going to have a long-term outcome? Because the benefits were going to be reaped later, not immediately, uh, it was thought. So these two CF teams in, in Wisconsin proposed that with a hypothesis that the early diagnosis of cystic fibrosis through neonatal screening would be medically beneficial without major risks. Um, so we just described the process. 
Now, you remember that this is 1984-1985. The CF gene was not described until 1989, so this is the pre-genetic era of cystic fibrosis diagnosis. The only screening test we had was the immunoreactive trypsinogen, which said, yes, you've got a potentially da damaged pancreas. They set a pretty high level for, for the IRT. They set 180 nanograms per mil, so these were pretty high IRTs uh, because it was no, there were no genes attached to it. If the IRT was elevated, the primary care physician was notified. The patient was referred to a cystic fibrosis center for testing, for sweat testing. Um, and they, it was categorized as either clearly positive, indeterminate, or clearly negative. Those that were clearly positive were enrolled in care programs at one of the two CF centers and managed prospectively. Those that were indeterminate had sweat testing uh, repeated. And this is, this, this is an ongoing story that we'll talk about in a minute. And then those who were clearly negative had genetic counseling and were sent on their merry way. The other side, the control group, was unblinded, again, either when they became symptomatic or when they were four years of age, and they were either counseled, uh, you know, either put into the CF program at four years of age or not. Along the way, because this was a program that went on for many years, the CF gene was identified, and therefore a, a second-level testing for the Delta F508 gene was put into their screening process in the, in the early 1990s. They also lowered their level of immunoreactive trypsinogen, as you can see, from 180 to 110. So they, they drew a broader net when they added the genetic testing to it. Over the first nine years of this, of this program, they identified 157 patients with classical cystic fibrosis, elevated IRT with or without, with, with or without a gene, and, and, and significantly positive sweat tests. But they also identified 21 who had one or more potentially diagnostic features, but they weren't not true classical patients. Either they had a borderline sweat test with suggestive symptoms, they had a borderline sweat chloride or a non-diagnostic sweat chloride, but two mutations identified as they got into the genetic era. They had an elevated sweat chloride, but they could only find one CF mutation, or they had a borderline sweat chloride with one CF mutation. So again, this is the new gray area of cystic fibrosis diagnosis and newborn screening. In 2001, they published their first 13 years of, of data. And there was, a, a, as you would expect, a marked difference in the age of diagnosis. Those who were in the treatment group were, group were diagnosed at a median of, of 13 weeks of age. Those who were in the control group were diagnosed at a median of 100 weeks, which is, which is actually only a little over two years. So a fair number of these patients became symptomatic uh, in the first two years of life and were funneled into the, the, the evaluation treatment program that way. But there was also a marked difference in indices of uh, nutritional status at the time of diagnosis between the groups, including head circumference. Um, and interestingly, the screened and identified group had a greater number of pancreatic insufficient patients, which you would think would make that group more nutritionally at risk than the control group. But it was not so. The, the patients in the control group actually had more nutritional risk by being not identified immediately. Uh, there was a significantly improved growth associated with early diagnosis. And throughout childhood, the early diagnosis or screen group had much, uh, many fewer patients who were less than 10th percentile, both weight and height, throughout childhood. So there was a benefit. Um, over, over time, because this group, was, this group of patients was monitored for, for many years, and there have been a number of, of, uh, of publications that have come out. This has been a, a goldmine of data for publication. They found that in infants under three months of age, a sweat chloride of over 30 millimoles per liter is significant. In, traditionally, it's been over 60 is significant, is, is positive, 
40 to 60 is uh, borderline or questionable, and under 40 is negative. But as they started working with more and more newborns, they found that the, over 30 is a significant and needs to be paid attention to. Um, they also found that once this was no longer an NIH study and uh, a research protocol, once it became the standard of practice in Wisconsin, babies were not mandated to be referred to a CF center after the diagnosis. And once they were no longer, once there was a group of babies no longer being cared for by a multidisciplinary team in a CF center, the benefits of newborn screening faded away. So it's, it's not just screening and identification, it's appropriate management by an appropriately skilled team. Um, the other thing that was, that was discovered, however, was that differences in practices between the two CF centers had significant outcomes also. In one of the CF centers, the babies were cohorted to a separate program and managed as a group of newborn screened babies separate from the rest of the CF population. In the other CF center, these babies were enrolled in CF care along with everybody else and managed just the same way. Those babies who were enrolled in regular CF care had an earlier acquisition of pseudomonas in the sputum. This again is before we, this, this, this shaped much of the development of what we know about infection control in CF patients now. But there, they, the, there was a risk. There was a risk of newborn screening in terms of being exposed to other CF patients and earlier acquisition of pseudomonas in the sputum. By 1997, uh, we, we, you know, again, Wisconsin started in 1984-85. Um, by 1997, Connecticut, Montana, and Pennsylvania offered a newborn screening, but not uniformly. Uh, there was a workshop by, at the CDC in 1997, and they recommended state-based uh, demonstration programs. They were still not entirely convinced that this was going to be beneficial. You remember the Wisconsin data was published in 2001, so this predated the publication of the Wisconsin data. And the, this, the nine years of follow-up was 1984 to 1995, 1993. So that data had not been, been published. So the CDC recommended state-based working groups, but did not recommend uniformity for CF screening. However, over time, it became obvious that the benefits significantly outweighed the risk. The benefits were uh, nutritional, pulmonary, and psychological. The genetic counseling could be provided. Uh, malnutrition could be prevented. Preempted, lung disease could be, to a certain extent, preempted, and psychosocial support could be provided to these families very, very early on. So in 2003, there was another CDC conference uh, where the data now from Wisconsin was available, and the recommendation was made that CF be uh, included in routine newborn screening in all states, uh, but also done in conjunction with systems to uh, assure access to high-quality care and follow-up. Uh, that the, the, the rigorous infection control process should be involved, uh, and that education and communication of result, results to family be involved. This was published by the, uh, the MMWR in the fall of 2004, which is where it, where it took hold, was fall of 2004. In 2004, newborn screening was still uniformly done in Colorado, in Wisconsin. It was now uniformly available in New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey, um, available in Pennsylvania and Connecticut, but not even available in the rest of, in 2004 in the rest of the country. By 2000, actually this is by 2010, and this is, this is an old slide, it was available in every state. Um, Texas was the last state to actually go online with newborn screening in uh, early 2010. It didn't actually happen in De December of 2009. Um, 
So all, all the, 50, uh, the 50 states, the 48 contiguous states, Hawaii and Alaska, by 2010 had it at least available, although not mandated uh, in uh, uh, Pennsylvania or Connecticut. I'm going to show you a lot of data from the CF Foundation Registry, and I will tell you this is an exceedingly powerful tool for tracking trends uh, for, and for doing outcomes research. We have 200 CF patients here. You couldn't track trends here. There are 20, over 25,000 patients in, this, in the National Registry, which is conducted under IRB uh, control. Every patient signs a consent for their data to re be released to the National Registry to be used for outcomes research. It's stripped of personal identifiers before it's released to anybody else, but there's fantastic research. And this is, this is data from 2015, which is the most recent national data we have, have received back for use. So if you look at uh, from 1991 to 2015, the blue bars are roughly, are, are not roughly, actually, the number of new CF diagnoses, roughly 900 a year. The white line or the yellow line is the percentage of those that are diagnosed by newborn screen, which has risen from uh, around 10% uh, in 2004 when you had four states that were doing uh, new, new, uh, newborn screen fairly consistently to over 60% in 2015. So there still are traditional diagnoses, ill patients being diagnosed, but the bulk of the CF patients are being diagnosed by new, new, newborn screen uh, in the current era. In New Hampshire and Vermont, um, the scenario was that the 2000 report, 2004 MMWR report recommended that newborn screen be added uh, to all state panels. In early 2005, there was a grassroots effort in this state. This is advocacy at its best uh, with CF team and consumers uh, to, to approach the newborn screen panel. A group of, of people, physicians and lay people, uh, made multiple presentations to the advisory committee. Uh, and I am told that by that, that after several presentations, uh, the people in the advisory committee called here and said, call them off, we'll do it. <laughs> Advocacy at its best. So they established a group to uh, develop protocols and processes, and a year later, from, uh, from May 2005 to May 2006, actually began newborn screening in New Hampshire as the, as the standard of practice. Vermont began a year later in 2007. Uh, we use the, the IRT, the immunoreactive trypsinogen, in the dry blood spot. As I said, our, our, our cards, Guthrie cards for all screening, goes to the Massachusetts State Lab, as do the ones from, Mass from uh, Maine and, and Vermont. Um, the evaluation of the IRT is, is not a set, a set number. Wisconsin used 180 nanograms per milliliter or 110 nanograms per milliliter. Um, what we use, or what the, the Massachusetts lab uses as a range, it's a moving target, is the highest 5% of determinations for that day are considered to be positive. If those, if those IRTs are elevated, then it goes for a second level genetic screen uh, with 39 alleles plus four that are added reflexively if A is positive and D is tested. Um, if uh, the IRT is elevated and there are either one or two allele CF genes identified, then that patient is referred to a CF center for sweat testing. Well, the only CF center in the state of New Hampshire is right here. So we, have, uh, we don't have control, but we get all the, all the sweat testing done in the state here. A few patients opt out and go to another center if they are on a border, um, either, either go to Maine or go to um, Massachusetts for testing. But all of the reports come here, and, and we document that the sweat testing is or isn't done and, and what the value is. Uh, 
The other thing is that genetic counseling is a mandatory part of the process. All patients who are referred for a sweat testing are expected to have genetic counseling regarding the implications of the, the positive newborn screen and the outcome of the sweat test. So for the first 11 years, of May 2006 to April, 2000, to April 2017, I was not able to get the absolute number of Guthrie cards that were, that were collected. Um, it's known that, that there are roughly 13,000 births a year in New Hampshire, so if you assume there are 143,000 births in this 11 years. I do know that there were 565 car elevated IRT with one or two level, one or two genes. So positive CF newborn screens, 565 in 11 years, that went to second level screening. So that was 0.4% of all births, roughly, assuming 13,000 a year, had a positive uh, newborn screen for cystic fibrosis. Of those 565 with a positive newborn screen, there were 45 patients who had a clear diagnosis of cystic fibrosis after, after uh, the, the newborn screen in the follow-up process. Either they had two genes identified on the newborn screen with or without sweat confirmation, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, or they had one gene identified on the newborn screen and a, pos a clearly positive sweat test. There was a time when in, in, the, in, the, in efforts of cost consciousness, we and other centers did not do secondary sweat testing, did not do sweat testing on patients who had two genes identified on the newborn screen. Um, you, you've got a diagnosis, why do you need to do more testing? Um, however, a screening test is a screening test. It is not a diagnostic test. And one of the concerns is because you are testing something that is removed from the patient, you've got a blood spot taken from the heel of a baby in a nursery, sent to a lab across state lines and analyzed, what if there's a misidentification? What if that blood spot really belongs to another baby or the blood spot that's positive doesn't belong to the baby? So, they, so the recommendation is indeed for a confirmatory test, um, even when you have two genes identified. Um, the other thing that has been discovered as we have gotten into um, some of the newer drugs in cystic fibrosis is that the sweat test is actually a biomarker for, for the cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator. And it is actually uh, the, the, the degree of elevation of the sweat test is a functional marker for CF um, uh, protein function. CF, uh, so, so all babies are recommended to have a sweat test now, even if we know that they have two abnormal genes on newborn screening. This is the, uh, the, the national standard for, for uh, diagnosis uh, by newborn screening. So a patient has a positive IRT DNA, or in some states they do an IRT and repeat the IRT rather than doing DNA testing. The parents of the PCP are notified. Uh, a CF center is notified, and the patient is referred for a sweat chloride test. If it is clearly positive with a value of over 60, uh, then you have a diagnosis of cystic fibrosis. If it is borderline with a value of 30 to 59, and you have two CF mutations, they're still dumped into the CF diagnosis pool, but there's a little, a little concern uh, about the, uh, the, the indication. If they have zero or one mutation and a borderline sweat test, or no DNA data available in the states that do the IRT and a second IRT screening, then they're labeled as, positive, as possible CF. You, go, you then go to genetic analysis and repeat the sweat test at some time between two and six months of age. You know that, that we've already put in the standard of the, of the, the lower limit or the, the upper limit of negative, the lower limit of, of borderline is being 30 rather than 40 here. Uh, this is the most recent uh, renovation of the guidelines. Those who have a sweat chloride of, of 29 or less are labeled CF very unlikely. You never say never. Um, but they are counseled as being, as being 
uh, whether they have, they all, by, to get to this point from newborn screening, have one identified CF gene because you don't get, if you have an elevated IRT, you don't get referred for a sweat test unless you have one or two uh, elevated, one or two CF genes identified. So these people are counseled as, as, as genetic carriers, CF gene carriers. And again, that, that counseling, that genetic counseling at the time of the sweat test uh, and the follow-up of that genetic counseling, especially if you're doing extended genetic testing, is exceedingly, an exceedingly important part of the process. Um, but, but, of the remaining 520 with positive newborn screen, the 565 who, who had positive newborn screen, 0.4% of the total population, 8% of those were taken out. 40, 45 had positive, were clearly positive CF. But then you've got 520 who have a positive newborn screen but no diagnosis. 95% of those, or 494, had clearly negative sweat tests, and they were therefore counseled as CF gene carriers. So most of the positive newborn screens are going to be negative diagnosis. 95% of those with positive newborn screens had clearly negative sweat tests and, and were gene carriers. 5%, however, had indeterminate sweat tests. No clear diagnosis. This is our new category of patients. So this is 4%, a little over 4% of all positive newborn screens, 5% of those who, um, yeah, yeah, who had indeterminate, 5% uh, of those who were not positive for CF. Some of these had, fit in the category that had two genes positive but a non-confirmatory sweat test. They are actually being managed with the, the CF positive population, but it, the, the, but it, was, it was disconcerting. One had uh, one gene, excuse me, two had one gene identified on the newborn screen, a borderline sweat test, but a second gene that was identified on extended testing. And interestingly, both of those carried the L206W, which is a French-Canadian gene um, and, and is associated with, with probably a, a fairly milder phenotype. One of them had uh, one gene on borderline sweat test, was sort of lost to follow-up. It didn't come back for that two- to six-month second sweat test. Didn't reappear until about a year later, and his second sweat test was positive. And on extended genetic testing, uh, he had a second gene identified. Uh, and then you got the, the category, we had 18 patients with one gene on newborn screen, borderline sweat test, can't find another gene on even extended testing. What do you do with these patients? Not clearly negative, not clearly positive. This is the CS-SPID CRMS population that will be followed prospectively, separate from the CF population. Nobody knows whether this, these are the patients who would become symptomatic as adults or the mild phenotype that will become symptomatic adults or would never be identified otherwise. Um, to this point, some of these patients have gone on to have positive sweat tests later uh, when they've been followed up. Uh, most of them have been relatively asymptomatic, but we're dealing with five years or so of follow-up on these patients. If you look at the national data, of new diagnoses in 2015, um, about 86% were clearly CF diagnosis. Nationally, about 8.8% had CRMS or CF-SPID. And then there's another 5% who are a, a different category of atypical CF. This is adults who present with symptoms and a not clear CF diagnosis. So this is separate from the newborn screen population. I'll put this in, in context for another state. Um, New Hampshire has about 13,000 births a year. Vermont actually has less than 6,000 births a year. The populations in New Hampshire and Vermont are pretty uniformly Caucasian, 94, 95% Caucasian populations in both states. When I did this for Georgia, in their first 10 years, 
They had had 1.6 million Guthrie cards screened in the state of Georgia in 10 years. We had, what, uh, uh, well, we had uh, 146,000 uh, in 11 years. Um, they had had 2,700 positive screens for CF, which was about 0.17% of all cards. We'd had about 0.4% of all cards. Difference, and, and, and probably the difference is the, the Caucasian penetration here, a much larger African-American population in Georgia, where the gene is not as prevalent in the African-American. Georgia has probably 50% Caucasian population. Um, in Georgia, they had had 254 uh, new cases of CF by newborn screen, which is about 9.5% of the positive screens and 68% of those had two mutations on, on screen. So a difference of, of significant proportions related to the number of births in the state. Moving on to what this is. This, this CF, um, CF newborn screen has actually changed our perspective from uh, intervention in, in, in individuals with illness to prevention in pre-symptomatic patients. Uh, we can, with, with newborn screening, prevent early deaths, prevent salt depletion, prevent malnutrition and growth failure, prevent cross-infection among populations by attention, attention to uh, uh, infection control, prevent early and chronic pseudomonas infection, hospitalizations, and lung disease. Uh, this is more CF registry data, and this is the median predicted survival by age starting back in 1986 in five-year rolling increments. So median predicted survival was around 29 years in the 1986 to 1990 in the era of the discovery of the CF gene. It's up to over 42 years now in, the, in this last five-year uh, rolling cycle. So there are a number of things. This obviously does not represent, um, does not represent newborn screening. These are, these are the advances that have been made in CF care independent of newborn screening because that has not made a difference in, in median survival significantly to this point. This is a tough, a, a tough uh, guide, but walk with me through it. If you were 20 years old in 1986 to, excuse me, if you were 40 years old in 1986 to 1990, uh, you were already a survivor. You had already outlived the projected statistics in general. Uh, and your life expectancy, if you were 40 years old then, was about 56 years. If you were 40 years old in, in 2011 to 2015, your life expectancy is over 60 years. So over this time period, six and a half years have been added to the life expectancy of CF patients who are 40 years old at, the, at, at that time. If you're 20 years old, you started at about 40 and you've moved up to uh, over 45 years. Um, again, expect life expectancy based on, on projected um, on, 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 on statistics. But if you were a newborn in 1986 to 1990, your life expectancy was between 30 and 35 years. If you're a newborn now, your life expectancy is over 40 years. So 12 and a half years has been added by things other than newborn screening in this, in this time period. Newborn screening is, is probably making a difference in this population, but probably not until the last 10 years. This is even more difficult to follow, but again, bear with me. This is um, birth cohorts and CDC weight. Uh, uh, and this is not projections. This is absolute, absolutes. So birth cohorts between 1986 and 1990 is this very thin, very yellow line at the bottom. When they were two years old, their median weight was 20th, 25th percentile. When they are 19 years old, their median weight is not a whole lot better. There's been some ups and downs. These are subsequent birth cohorts. These are the ones, the 2006 to 2010 and 2011 to 2015, are the ones who have benefited from newborn screening. So you can see that their weight at two years has already significantly increased to 40th percentile, median across the country, for both of these cohorts. 
and they're maintaining their weight much better by early intervention and, and early, uh, uh, yeah, early, early treatment. The same thing for, for lung function. Uh, again, the lowest, the lowest value is in 1986 to 1990. Starting at six years of age, when we measure lung function, their FEV1 was around 90% as an average. That's pretty good. But by 29 years of age, it's fallen off to not much more than 60%. Um, it has, but it is, this is a, the, the pattern is the same, but you'll see that the baseline is rising because of things that have been done before six years of age. And there was, an, there was a study several years ago, another epidemiologic study, that showed that growth in the first three years of life predicts lung function at six years of age. Again, a, a strong uh, plug for newborn screening. So what about the primary care physician? What is the role of the primary care physician? Number one is to recognize what a newborn screen is. A, newborn, a positive newborn screen is, does not mean definitely a diagnosis of CF, but it also does not mean, oh, it's just a newborn screen, don't worry about it. Uh, appropriate counseling has to go along at the level of the primary care physician because that is the first contact with the patient who's had a newborn screen. They're not referred directly to us. They're referred to their primary care physician. That's the person with whom they should have or will, or will have a long-term relationship. And that's the first point of counseling. So recognize what the positive newborn screen means. It, it means that they've had an elevated IRT and one or two genes have been identified. And the form that comes back to the primary, to the primary care physician does, it, it does say what the level of the IRT is and which genes have been identified, whether it's one or two. If two genes have been identified, that's pretty likely going to be a positive sweat test and a positive uh, CF. If one gene's been identified, you've got about an 8%, excuse me, about a 3% chance of having a, no, about an 8% chance of having a, uh, a positive um, diagnosis. The goal for CF, for, for primary care, is for infants to be at the 50th percentile weight for height. We're looking to, to, to keep those pounds on. Again, a positive weight and growth in the first three years of life predicts lung function after you, after you can start measuring. So we encourage fat, including whole milk at this population, and we monitor very closely for lack of weight gain. We see in the CF Center newborns monthly for the first six months of life, and then if they're doing well every other month for the second six months of life before they roll into the quarterly recommended follow-up. Um, infants with CF need supplemental salt, and they're not going to salt their food. They need an eighth of a teaspoon of salt, an eighth to a quarter of a teaspoon of salt per day. And interestingly, if you go to a fast food record, record, yeah, restaurant and pick up one of those little packets of individual salt to put in your food, that's an eighth of a teaspoon. So that's how much they need uh, salt added to formula, added to uh, something they're going to take by, by mouth. But they and then when they're older, they need to be taught to eat salty foods and, and, and salt their own food. And the other things that early is that early symptoms can be subtle. And we need to maintain close contact between primary care physicians and, and, and the CF Center team because coughing or wheezing or persistent cough doesn't need to be written off as, oh, they just have a cold. Um, we have a lower threshold for use of antibiotics, recognizing antibiotic stewardship but a lower threshold for the use of antibiotics uh, in, in CF care. Um, and also, loose stools or abdominal pain needs to be recognized and dealt with. As you've seen, life expectancy is increasing, but it's dependent on daily preventive care. Uh, and, and therefore, the role of the primary care physician is to convey hope. Things, things that patients read on the Internet may not give the right picture, but we also want to inquire about adherence to the regimen and reinforce limit setting. Just, you know, these, these patients need to be, these children need to be dealt with as normal, healthy 
kids and not allowed to, to get away with things. It may, be, it may be funny for a kid to be the, the controller of, the, of the, the lifestyle in the family when they're two, three, four years of age, but not when they're 15, 16, 17 years of age. And those limits have to be set early, which, which we try to enforce, but certainly in the, in the context of, of primary care, that's, that we, we appreciate that help. There are also psychosocial challenges. And the biggest thing is we have to discourage CF patients from socializing with each other because of the transmission of pseudomonas from patient to patient. We can't, we, there are no longer CF camps. We don't have focus groups. We, don't have, we, have, we have family groups and, and family meetings by, by, by internet and, and uh, WebExes. Um, but the CF places the entire family under, under stress. We need, to, we need to pay attention or we, we need help paying attention to unaffected SIBs. And we certainly appreciate feedback about family functioning uh, from the primary care physician. So, Things that we took for, take for granted now. What was happening in 2006, 2007? Well, the iPhone first became available, was introduced in January 2007. Who doesn't have an iPhone in their pocket? Who doesn't have a smartphone? Um, Twitter was introduced in 2006. Google bought YouTube in 2006. Uh, 30 Rock was, was uh, introduced in late 2006. Pluto was downgraded from a, from a planet. <laughs> The last Harry Potter book was published in July 2007. Uh, and Barry Bonds broke the home run record, broke, broke Hank Aaron's home run record in 2007. So these are all things, again, these are all things that we take for granted, just like we take CF newborn screening for granted. Um, I want to thank the uh, CF team here. Sharon Littlefield maintains the records of, of newborn screens uh, for, for, the, for the state, at, well, for us locally, but essentially for the state. Lynn Feenan. Is, is a bird dog about following up these patients and making sure they get sweat tested and we follow up on the sweat test. There is a state newborn screen coordinator who, who handles all newborn screening, not just CF at the state level, Linda Kincaid, relatively new to the position but has done a wonderful job. And then my, my severe thanks to the Stover and Vigent families for allowing me to share those stories, which I think are very compelling for newborn screening. Thank you. need any supplement to their breast milk as far as calories besides the enzymes and how many of your kids do you say you end up needing g-tubes to get them adequate nutrition um breastfed infants you're right we often have to pump and supplement breast milk with with formula um our i didn't show you our local growth statistics in the first two years of life are not great because we have a high preponderance of, of breastfed babies our growth statistics for two years and beyond are excellent. Um, and this is something we struggle with because breastfeeding is good and we want to encourage it. Um, so we, we do have to supplement a good bit and we, and we struggle with, with, with that. Yeah, I, I can't tell you what proportion. I can probably say very few of our breastfed babies get away with absolute nursing and nothing else um, if, if they're pancreatic insufficient. Uh, if they're pancreatic sufficient, they have a mild phenotype anyway, then, then they're okay. I can't give you a number. What percentage have to have G-tubes? Um, we are pretty aggressive with the G-tubes uh, as, as compared to national. Um, but I would say, um, Lynn, percentage of G-tube, 20%? 20, between 20 and 30, I think, on the less, our less data. Okay. Uh, of, of, and it, but that's all CF patients, not just pancreatic insufficient. Now, what, what we probably have... Um, 
70, 60, 70 percent pancreatic insufficient patients, um, which, is, which is about the same as nationally. So there is, there is a population, but we have some who are pancreatic sufficient who also have G-tube, so I can't, um, it, it, they have other problems. Um, just a uh, follow-up to Shulia's question, because I was going to ask about it too, but for the breast milk-fed babies, have you thought about having moms pump and obtain their kind of high milk or the higher fat milk and using that and just coaching them in terms of pumping and how to... We do, we do have, well, we often do have, have mothers pump and, and supplement the, the pumped milk. Hadn't thought about just, you know, getting just four milk um, and, and using that first. Uh, no, 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 just actually discarding the four milk. And getting the after. Giving the high milk, which would be higher in fat. Okay. Potential. And then um, the role of, um, or kind of Juliet Madan's research around the microbiome, can you speak to that? And then also the role of gene therapy kind of future. Okay. Um, yeah, Dr. Medan's microbiome research is phenomenal, and it's a, that's a whole other story. Um, we, have, we have a population that we've been following since 2009, since the first summer I came, um, uh, following forward, looking at gut and airway microbiome. Uh, and the data, there's a big difference between breastfed and non-breastfed babies. Um, but the, the interesting thing is that she can predict by changes in airway flora at a, at a 16S particle level, um, pulmonary exacerbations. Uh, there, there's a dramatic, in, in, just a whole uh, trove of inf information. Uh, that, and this is, this is not unique to here. This is, this is the hot topic nationally. Uh, so it's, it's, not, it's not at a level that it can be used clinically at this point, but it's exceedingly important data that's being collected uh, and will be rolled out. It will be important nationally in the future. Um, the, the possibility of gene therapy. We are... Gene therapy has been um, the byword, you know, from the time of the discovery of the gene. It was, it was in five years we're going to have gene therapy and we're going to cure anybody. Well, we're more than 25 years later, and, and we haven't cured anybody with gene therapy yet. Uh, the push now is um, new drugs. We're, we're going into designer pharmacotherapy, um, genetically directed pharmacotherapy that can change the expression of the CF gene. And we currently have two products on the market that um, one is specifically for the homozygous Delta F508 population, which is 50%, Kathy, of, of the CF population. Uh, and the other is for those who have what are called gating mutations, which started off with just one gene, the G551D, has now been expanded to a much broader array. It was 4% then. It's probably 10% now, about 10%. So, so for about 60% of the patients, we have disease-modifying oral therapy. Highly expensive, but, but there. And that will make a huge difference as time goes on in terms of the trajectory of life expectancy. Started with, started with um, early intervention, early diagnosis, starting those therapies early, which we can't do yet because they're, they're not approved uh, except for the very small population. That's going to make a huge difference ongoing. Gene therapy is still being looked at, but I think that the oral pharmacotherapies are going to outstrip that in terms of, of disease modifying. Dr. Gabriel, 
Lou, thank you for um, emphasizing the um, collaboration with primary care as being an important theme. Um, and I have sort of two questions related to that. One is um, how to promote that collaboration when so many patients with chronic diseases sort of see their specialty as the, the medical home and just don't come to primary care. And the second is about the population that has been labeled as carriers um, and sort of how we should be um, treating them. Those, those kids who cough for a month or three weeks or two weeks, should we be treating them differently? Um, at what age is that information shared with the kids? Is that a parental decision and sort of genetic counseling around that? Uh, both are excellent questions. How do, you, how do you promote? When we are seeing patients once a month, why does the patient feel a need to go see their primary care physician? Well, early on is routine immunizations. We, we certainly don't give routine immunizations, and we, try, and we try to keep them in the medical home. But we recognize as kids get older, if they're coming to see us once a quarter, and, and as they get into school, that's more than their scheduled visits with their PCP, and they're not going to want to do that. It's, it's, that's a tough thing, and we, try to, we certainly try to promote ma their maintaining a relationship, but it's, but it's a difficult thing. Uh, what do you do with carriers? Um, well, number one, identifying, you know, we, we came upon a situation recently where in, in a family there was, there was a, a child who was a carrier, what was, actually, I've forgotten what, what, there was a question of an ethical, uh, do, you, do you test a baby for carrier state if he had negative newborn screen, but there's a known CF in the family? It was, it was a family with two known siblings with CF and, the, and, the, and a third sibling who had a cough did not have a positive newborn screen, but mom really wanted, wanted him. So is it appropriate, because mom wants to know, is it appropriate to test that patient for carrier state, or do you wait until that patient is old enough to make the decision himself as they're getting into reproduction years? Certainly those who have been identified as carriers, the, the parents should be notified, and the parents are notified. That's part of the mandated process early on. At what point do you tell the patient? We don't have ongoing follow-up with that patient. Um, that's, yeah, I was wondering yeah, your perspective on I, I, I would, you, you're going to see a lot more of those. Yeah, I don't know when it's when it's appropriate. Certainly, again, as you're preparing them for adulthood and for taking care of their own things, they need to know that as part of their reproductive um, planning. Uh, when do you, when do you start that process? Uh, you don't really want to burden them. Yeah, yeah. But it, it does it does need to come out. <laughs> Hopefully I see everyone tonight, Dr. G, 5 o'clock for dinner with Dr. Carmel at 5.30. And, and one last thank you to Lynn Feenan for bringing us Dr. Carmel. <laughs>